Welcome to Story Comic Presents, where we interview amazing storytellers and artists. This is episode 233. I'm your host, Barney Smith of StoryComic.com, and we're excited to have with us the award-winning and internationally celebrated author, Stephen Kiernan. Stephen. Hi, How's number 233, man. That's right. See, is that is that an is that an odd number? Is that a prime number? I'm not. Well, it's an odd number. Is that a prime? I think number? it shows you have excellent taste that you found 232 more interesting people than me, and you finally got <laughs> so far down the list. Like, oh, I might as well talk to Kieran now. Well, no, I, these are all those are all practice interviews because I want to make sure I was really oh, good to you. talk to you, Stephen. <laughs> I, really, I believe you. I really do. <laughs> So, so you have a book coming out this in 2023 called The Glass Chateau that's yes. coming out. And that's what's really interesting. It already has reviews. So that must be some of your some some of the people have already reviewed it, yeah, rated it at least on good. I'm, I'm afraid that's just like Goodreads nonsense because the galleys aren't yeah. out. It's not printed yet. Um, people who have reviewed. No one has read it. I mean, my agent okay. and my editor. Even even like my the marketing person who's handling my book uh, at the, my publishing company hasn't read it yet. So those reviews <laughs> are just completely fictional. But I hope that they're good ones. Do they did they like it? Well, one was a five star and one was a four star. So I'm wondering what that fictional person gave you four stars didn't like about the book they haven't read yet. <laughs> That's very funny. Like who who you know who holds an old grudge and won't give me a five for a book that isn't even out yet. <laughs> I know. Maybe they gave it a four because they wanted it to come out this month, and it's not going to be till June. You know, who knows? <laughs> I don't know. But no, there's no reviews yet, and um, you know, uh, I'm at the point in the process where I can't do anything else. The book is finished and in production, right. so I hope people love it. You know, I right. love writing it. When you also is like, yeah, watching some of your previous interviews, you are a writer. Like you just write and write and write and write. And like you first started off doing some first start off as a journalist and you did some nonfiction yeah. stuff. And now you're just doing mostly just historical fiction right now. Correct. Yes. Yes. So, yeah. I, <clears throat> excuse me. I wrote on the side while I did other jobs for many years. And then I really fell in love with working in newspapers. And it was a great job. Um, <clears throat> I felt all the time like I wished I was older and knew more. Um, but, uh, but you know, every day was an education. It was very compelling. I liked it. And it was a lot of time with sentences and with words. So there was some craft training that was happening all that time. But I was also writing novels on the side all that time. And, right. then, um, and then some of the things that I've been writing about in the news, um, I turned into my first two books, uh, Last Rites and then Authentic Patriotism. And um, and one of those books, the first one, Last Rites, led to a lot of uh, speaking invitations that paid pretty well. And so I was able to take some time and just do that speaking and write a novel now that I was really a lot more experienced than when I'd tried novels before. And so now the one that's coming out in June, uh, The Glass Chateau, that's my fifth novel. And the sixth one... Um, is finished and I'm working on revising it right now. And the working title is Words for Snow. And, um, you know, I've been really lucky that I've had smart editors and good publishers that have done really a reputable job. I've been fortunate with that and very fortunate with it. And so, yeah, you know, I haven't had a job or a boss in almost 19 years. And wow. the thing is that I do have a boss and he's never stops beating me to get back to work. <clears throat> and um, I published my first novel at 53, Barney. And, wow. 
you know, I, now that I have this incredible opportunity to just write novels for a living, I kind of don't want to waste a minute. I waited a long time. I wrote a lot for, I wrote four books that all got rejected everywhere. You know, I really uh, want to keep on doing this as long as I'm drawing breath. I got, I got right. stories galore. And right. uh, yeah, so I am, I'm writing a lot. And so, cause you did, so had, when you first started off and you kind of got your foot in the door by putting out some of those nonfictions ones, was that with, were, I compare that to the passion that you're doing with your, with your fiction stuff. Did you, did they, were they necessary for you to start writing your fiction novels or were you, you still had that passion of the stuff that you wrote about in your, your nonfiction work as well? Well, Barney, first of all, I want to congratulate you. I never, I've never been asked the question quite that way before, you know, and most people just go like, was it hard to switch from journalism to, to fiction? You know, and um, you're asking in a more complicated way. The first thing is that uh, that publishing a couple of books in, in nonfiction did sort of open the door to the publishing world for me. I had an agent, I had an editor, you know, uh, and I ended up changing both of those things in time. But there were, but like I, I knew what a book was and how it was produced and uh, some of the business of it and that sort of thing. Um, um, and I think also, uh, publishing a couple of books of nonfiction kind of gave me the courage mm -hmm. to, to try novels again. I had written a novel that got 37 rejections. And the reason I remember is that that's how many commercial publishers there were in the United States of America, 37. And they all said no. And I had really worked hard on it. And I thought it was pretty good, you know, a quiet novel, but the deserved publication. And so after that, I just said, you know, okay, I'm just going to concentrate on my journalism. And, uh, you know, and a lot of years went by and um, decades. And then, and then uh, this, the success of nonfiction made me say, with the encouragement of some writer friends, I have to be honest, saying, you can do this, you should try this again. Uh, I had a night <clears throat> when I was um, on vacation, on a bicycle vacation with uh, Danny Yetton, who's a playwright in Middlebury and a professor at Middlebury College, a good friend, and, and Chris Bojalian, who's, you know, probably the most successful Vermont writer in history in terms of, you know, books sold and books produced. He's unbelievable and is a wonderful good guy and very close friend. Mm -hmm. And um, and I was uh, drinking a lot of red wine with them one evening, and I told him the idea that I had for this not entirely morally scrupulous cell research lab and that I wanted to write a novel about um, because of, there was so much kind of creepy stuff that was being done with DNA and so on. But I didn't, it missed something. I didn't, it was missing something. And I didn't know what it was. And Chris said, was meaning missing that the, the main character of this book needs to be a brilliant, beautiful woman. And, and Dana said, uh, no, she needs to be a beautiful woman. And Dana said, who is smarter than all the other scientists. And I was like, um, uh, I'll be right back. <laughs> <laughs> I ran off and I came back about a year later and I had the curiosity. And uh, so they literally gave me like the courage to, to do that. And, um, and then I was off to the races, you know, and now I feel like I've been a novelist forever because I was always telling stories and now, now it's, it's how I make my living. And right. God bless the readers who make that possible. You know, every, every blessed one of them that picks up a book, uh, means I get to finally do what I've always dreamed of doing.
Well, and the curiosity came out in 2013. So this has now been 10 years that yeah. you've been doing this. And yeah. your other novels had more of a historical bent or more of a World War II, well, except for the hummingbird, but <clears throat> Baker's Secret, um, universe, the universe of two, but now also the, the Glass Chateau all kind of have this. Well, the curiosity, uh, one of the main characters is a man who was born in 1780. Oh, and wow. so there's a lot of history there. Um, and um, and then uh, the hummingbird is about a hospice nurse taking care of a man who's terminally ill, and he's a historian, and he's trying to finish a book before he dies that is about a Japanese pilot who bombed the mainland of the United States in World War II, and then came back in the 1970s feeling remorseful, and gave the people of the town where he dropped those bombs a samurai sword that had been in his family for 400 years, and that is based on actual history. There was a okay. Japanese soldier who bombed the mainland United States and came back 30 years after the war and gave a samurai sword to the town of Brookings, Oregon. And it's in the public library there. And I was like, that's such a great novel. And so, so anyway, that's the book that this dying man is trying to finish is about this case. Uh, yeah, I think, and then the, the Baker's Secret, that was basically D-Day from the French perspective. What it's like to live in occupied Normandy and you have no rights and not much food. And then one day, 200,000 strangers come and lay their lives down by the thousand to set you free. Right. And then, right? And, so, and then, University of Two, this is a love story set amid the development of the atomic bomb. And I'd be happy to talk so, for 45 minutes or an hour about the new one, <laughs> which is well, also. So good. I'm, I'm, I'm curious, too, because the Glass Chateau also takes. Is it almost a, almost like a, a sequel to the Baker's Secret? It almost seems like it's connected in some way. It is connected in a bunch of ways. One is that it's set in France. Right. Um, and the other is that it's the same kind of community story. Uh, you know, the Baker's Secret is about one town. And this right. is about somewhat about one town, but really about one group of people. The Glass Chateau is, that is, one group of people outside of a town. And um, what I'm trying to do, Barney, with all these things, is not just tell like a pretty story about the past. I'm trying to tell a story that I think reflects on the present time. So, for example, the Glass Chateau, this will be out the 20th of June, okay? Um, here's the story. You have a nation that is damaged in lots of ways and has an enormous rebuilding task to get to what it used to be. However, the people are politically and financially and culturally totally polarized. They, they, they think the other guy is not only wrong, but he's immoral and stupid. Um, and there's a former president who believes he's still in power and holds rallies and gives speeches, all of those things. And what I'm talking about is France immediately after the end of World War II. But it correlates. It correlates with now. And the ways that France rebuilds and the stories that I tell of these people who should not get along. They should not for a whole lot of reasons. And what they're doing is rebuilding the stained glass windows of the bombed out cathedrals of France. And that work helps them to heal. And because that work requires all of them to work together, as a group, they begin to heal. And this is how you rebuild a country, I believe. And so, you know, there's one scene where uh, where one of the characters, a woman is saying, you know, before you kill each other, reflect on all that you have built, mm. all that you have made, and imagine what you still can build. 
and that inspires them to do some things that I'm not going to tell. <laughs> but <laughs> I think are pretty good. But so so it is. Yes, it's a history book, right? It's about a time in France, but it's absolutely relevant to now. And this mm. is what's fascinating to me is to find these stories in history that are pertinent, that do say something about now. Uh, and so it's not just like a recitation. Here's what it was like at Valley Forge. Right. You know, it's more right. like, um, hey, all the scientists that were working on building atomic bomb didn't want it to be used. Right. That's really what University 2 is about. They did not want it to be used. They signed petitions. They asked the president and the secretary of war and everyone. They did everything they could to prevent it from being used once they understood what his power was. So no. like that. So I'm, I'm curious, too, because of the fact that, you know, you yeah, you you mentioned as well is that, you know, you know, as a journalist, you kind of have to look at facts. But as a writer, you have to kind of look at feelings. And how did you when you're writing these books and you kind of come up up against something that's factually historically didn't happen? Be like, well, that doesn't really fit within my story. I need to. How much do you take? How much artistic uh, freedoms do you take to to make sure that your story flows in the way you want to take it? Oh, that's the thing. Is reality is uh, is a tough taskmaster, right? Right. Um, and you know you can't say we bombed three cities in Japan. That's not going to work. Okay, we bombed right. two. Right. Um, so what happens is um, first, from the research standpoint. Um, well, no, let me say this. I adhere to the reality. And it is one of the challenges of writing these books to make them adhere to the reality. So, for example, the Baker's Secret, that French perspective on, on D-Day, um, a French person is not going to know 101st Airborne from 82nd Airborne. They're not. Okay? But I need to know. And when the, when the soldier appears, I need to have him in the right uniform with the right gear, with the right mission, even with the right food. I need to know down to that level. And the great thing about D-Day is that it's spectacularly documented. There are 3,000 oral histories that are that are on tape at the at the um, museum in New Orleans uh, for, for D-Day. There are excellent books about it. Um, I interviewed a guy, uh, Vermonter, who was second wave on Omaha Beach. And I mean, you know, I read for, I would, did all that so that it would be down to the minute accurate. I took one liberty and a bunch of readers called me on it. They saw it. <laughs> so I, I learned my lesson. And so I really stick to it. And there's, uh, it was very difficult with the universe of two because I needed a couple to get married by a certain date and get pregnant by a certain date so that she would be pregnant, you know, when Hiroshima happened. They you know, so there's like a lot of the story that gets bent around it. That said, it's a totally different kind of research because as a journalist, you're looking for the fact. You're always looking for that, that telltale fact that will say, oh, actually, this guy, this congressman, he never went to this university. He didn't work for these banks that he said he worked for. And here are the facts. You're looking for that. And when you're writing a novel, you're looking for something different like this. In Los Alamos, New Mexico, where they built the atomic bomb, it was the largest collection of Nobel Peace Prize winners, current or future, in the history of the world, including even when they give the Nobel Prize now in Stockholm, right? 
This was the largest collection of those kinds of mines ever. And the milk was always sour. <laughs> Somehow, like they'd get good milk down in Santa Fe. <clears throat> it was a tough drive coming up the hill there, excuse me. But it's like 26 miles up to this fortress up on the mountain. And the guys would be, you know, sitting with a bowl of cereal. And the guy would be like, you're going to have cereal? His buddy would be like, don't have that cereal. He's like, no, the milk got here last night. I saw the truck arrive. It was still cold when they put it in the freezer. And the guy would be like, I wouldn't do it. And the guy takes one bite. Oh, it's awful. It's awful. And it humanizes these scientists in a way that, that the facts don't. There was a great, another example I'll give you, a great cultural divide in Los Alamos because there were the, the military guys, okay? They, they were guarding the, the, the fences. They were saying, you can't come in to people outside. And they were saying, you can't go out to people inside. So they wouldn't be spies. They were worried about information being stolen by spies, all that sort of thing. They had uniforms. They had ranks. They had duties. They had barracks. They had clear mission and orders. And meanwhile, there are these flaky, weird guys, unwashed, you know, maybe stinking of the lab, wandering around, looking at the sky at all hours, you know, like smelling bad. Like, what are they doing? There was this total kind of contempt for the scientists. They're just wasting time here. There's a war going on and they're just wandering around, scratching their heads, right? Mm -hmm. Until the test in Alamogordo, the Trinity test. And then they said, oh, this is what you're building. Mm. This is the most terrifying thing that ever existed. Mm. This is this is hell on earth and you made it. And, and that shift in culture. Now there's a million facts behind what I described to you, but it's really, this is a story about humanity and different mm. attitudes at that time. <clears throat> and the scientists, by the way, barely even noticed that the army was there. They were so busy with their mission and what they were trying to figure out that they barely noticed. So it was a one-sided antagonism. So the research tells me those things, and that makes it very human. And, and so I'm less interested in the fact. I'm more interested in what the human piece of that time was like. Right. So there, so a couple of pieces that you brought up and you, as you mentioned earlier as well, do you see yourself, what, what, a uh, what drives you to 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 your writing? Is it like exploring characters and settings, or is it telling a story? Yes. <laughs> you know, Barney, for about if you count all the different newspapers I did it at for about 14 years, I wrote editorials. You know, the daily opinion piece that a lot of newspapers don't do anymore, except the major metros. And um, and uh, one of my brothers used to joke, everyone is entitled to Stephen's opinion. <laughs> you know, I had 365 opinions a year. Yeah. And, you know, I think I, I, more, I entrenched more people in their views than I did cause people to change their views, I think. But I definitely wanted some people to change their minds or at least think a little differently about things. And, <clears throat> and I'm still doing that. I'm just using a long form. I'm using story. And... The way that the people of France took care of each other when they thought that no one was ever going to come to save them is a way we should take care of each other on this earth. Hmm. And the scientists who, once they understood what it was they were building, that they tried to kind of put the genie back in the bottle, um, that they actually understood the moral consequence of what they were doing in a way 
that we don't really think about so much anymore. Right? You know, Vladimir Putin says something about nukes and we get all worked up, but we have thousands more than he does. Right. You know, so, but we don't do that. We don't look in the mirror about that. You know, the only country to use them so far is us. And we killed tens and hundreds of thousands of people, you know, and lots and lots of justification, lots of good arguments to be made that it brought the war to a swift conclusion um, and probably saved hundreds of thousands of lives. And as I did the research, that stuff is pretty compelling. Um, but nonetheless, can we look now at like, before we point at somebody else, can we say, well, you know, like these are the sorts of things. So it's now it's like a, it's like a hundred thousand word editorial hidden in the story. Um, and some of it is also that I don't know the answer. And so what I really like to do is, is have a question. So for example, there's a woman who's in university two, there's a woman who's really upset that the bomb was used. And she's talking to a woman whose husband was going to be part of the invasion of Japan. And she's like, you don't like the bomb? I love the bomb. My husband's coming home, and we're going to make babies, and we're going to live together for the rest of our lives instead of him dying on some beach on some tiny island. You know, and there's some truth to what she says. Right. These women have this argument, and, and I'm not trying to decide. I just think the argument is really human and right. interesting and maybe gives us something to think about. Um, so... So, yeah, the characters have got to live, and I have to love them, and I tend to fall in love with them a lot, even the villains. Um, and, um, and I do like what the research requires me to learn about places, whether it's clambering all over New Mexico or it's spending a bunch of time in Normandy on those beaches. And that's kind of the great privilege of this job. Um, you know, today I spent, I spent the afternoon, just to put a bow on it, I spent the afternoon in a at AO Glass in Burlington, which is, you know, biggest glass foundry in Vermont, um, making glass flowers <clears throat> because of the people who are glass makers in my novel, The Glass Chateau. I spent, I spent the afternoon making glass. <laughs> cool, you know, like I love my job, you know. Um, and part of it is also because I need to know what it's like to be holding a metal, a piece of glass that just came out of the oven with a metal tool and feel the metal tool get too hot for your hand because the heat right. of the glass, right? A character will have that experience, I guarantee you. <laughs> you know? yeah. No, do you, because you said also uh, before in, in a previous interview that if we're lucky, we're going to probably read 3,000 books in our lifetime. And, and you said something along the lines of, if you don't like a book, don't feel like you need to finish reading it. Like if you don't like a book, there's plenty more books out there. Um, and, and, and you also mentioned that you do a lot of, you got a new book coming like you have a new idea. So when you do research and you find something on a, on a book that you're writing and it sparks an idea of, Oh, I want to, I want to write a book about this. I want I have a story I need to tell about this. Do you have like a list someplace that you have to, pr you, you prioritize your, your your stories how does that work all right i want to i want to answer the first part first if i could this <clears throat> is my cough here but in the old days when you're riding in your car and a song comes on the radio that you hate you have not heard four measures of it and boom you would hit the button on that radio and change the station like that right right you're um you're watching tv and and the jets are getting their butt kicked one more time you just click gone Right? You don't even think about it. 
You're watching right. a movie and and suddenly it's really you, you, Game of Thrones. You turn on the first episode of Game of Thrones and there are those dismembered bodies lying in the snow. And you go, not for me, off. No problem. Yeah. Something about the form of a book. People be like, well, that's too gruesome for me. I'm just going to read eight more books about, you know, about this. This, I mean, there is this way that people feel an obligation. I'm glad because sometimes my books, you know, lag. I know mm -hmm. they do my best, but there you are. But I think that also there are great books to be read and there's nothing wrong with putting one down. And mm -hmm. I'm not going to suggest any that you ought to put down, but sometimes it just doesn't fit you for whatever reason. Um, so what was the, the other question you asked me was, um, how, how do you prioritize? Oh, my because you, you always, yeah, your ideas and how do you, how do you do that? Yeah. Oh, the honest answer is failure. Um, what happens is uh, when I send a book off to my editor, um, I go, I enter a period of great insecurity. Even though I, I love her and she's really smart and she makes my books better every time, I go into a period of insecurity that does not end until the day the book is published because I just don't know. I just don't know. I did my best, but I don't know. And the, the way that I kind of avoid neurosis about this and just getting anxious completely is that I start another book. Um, and I always think, this, this is great. This is going to be right on the heels of the other one. And this is so good. And I always get about 100, 100 and a quarter, maybe tops 150 pages in. I'm like, this is a dog. This is no good. <laughs> this is just, and I literally just have to fail. And then I put it aside. And then I have all of these other ideas that I've been thinking about for years. You know, I've just a little bit embarked on a project that I've been thinking about for six years because I learned about it when I was doing research for The Baker's Secret. So maybe even seven years. I think it's six, though. I've been thinking about this. And I've got a bunch of these things where they're just like, they're like marbles in my pocket. And I'm turning them over and over. And I pull them out and look at them. And then there's a time where I say, Oh, this is interesting because now either there's something intellectually or emotionally interesting to me about this, or better yet, there's something in this story that now kind of pertains to the world, mm. right? And so, so I had that stained glass idea. That 2017 was when they had the great Marc Chagall exhibit up at the Museum of Fine Arts in Montreal. And that was my first encounter I had with his stained glass windows which are not like any other stained glass windows done by anyone else on earth. And I will tell you that the stained glass windows that the men make in uh, the glass chateau, they're Chagall's windows. Wow. They are. And I traveled a lot so that I could see Chagall's windows in lots of places. And I've read lots of books about Chagall and all that stuff. So, so, um, so we came to a time where I wanted to tell a rebuilding story about polarization. I'd had that idea since 2017, some version of it. And then there was a day <clears throat> where I had, I had finished a book called Words for Snow that will be out some future year. And, um, and, uh, and I was like, well, what am I going to do next? And I started writing the idea that doesn't work, and it failed. And when I put it aside, it, it was a novel about Jackson Pollock, the painter and madman. And when I put it aside, then it's like, well, what do I have that's a rebuilding story? The world really needs a how do we get from where we are to, to a better place. Well, here's this story about rebuilding France. Huh, I'm going to start doing some reading about this. And I find out that 
De Gaulle didn't cede power and that he was holding rallies and stuff after he was out of office. I was like, oh, what else we got? What else we got? And and um, and that that uh, you know the Marshall Plan of the, which was the American money to bail out France didn't really get there till almost 1950, late 1940s. Wow. So they were on their own and starving and rebuilding and all that and struggling all that time. Like perfect, perfect. Right. Here's a way to tell a story from the past that reflects on now. So I've, yeah, I got a bunch of ideas in my head. I don't know which one, which ones are going to be the failures. There's one every book. I'm sorry. I wish I could skip that part. I really do. Because right. I, but it's always like six months of wasted work. But it's just how I go. I was going to say. So when you look at it, like for when you when you send it to your editor, and also when you bring it off to like your 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 agent, is there somewhere where, where there's a point where they say, yeah, I don't think this is sellable do you ever take a book like well i like this book i do you ever think about doing self-publishing on the books that that don't make the cut with for your agent or anything like that i don't i don't um i uh i think there are people for whom self-publishing really makes sense um right. because they've got things they really want to have kind of codified in book form you don't get reviewed you don't get distribution and you don't get paid and um and i want all those things this is how i make my living but also my agent is on my side mm. my editor is very very much on my side and i trust those people a lot they also give me plenty of rope to tie myself up with um plenty of artistic leeway every editorial suggestion my editor has ever given me has been optional right down to the title right she gives me that freedom so and i and but i also you know you walk into her office and there's the shelf that's all number one bestsellers hmm. well, how does she do that those are a lot of different kinds there's there's jody pico and there's neil stevenson and there is you know i don't know like all different kinds of writers and the, and i'm and i'm in that office i'm going to listen to what she has to say it's not the myth is that it's an antagonistic relationship in my case the reality is this is somebody who knows a lot and right. I will listen. Also working in newspapers has taught me because editors saved me many times in newspapers. And when I was an editor, I saved reporters many times just by catching something that wasn't clear or that would have gotten you sued that wasn't worth getting sued over and things like that. And so I came to believe that the editing process was a collegial and an effective one. Um, so I will usually before I embark on one of my new ideas, I will sit down with my editor and say, and my agent and say, I got four or five ideas. Tell me what you like. Oh, okay. You know, and she will say some, I'll be like one sentence in and she'll go, no, I'll be no, listen, <laughs> two more sentences. No, 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 no. Like she doesn't mince words at all, which I love. Right. Right. And then I'll tell her something else. She'd say, well, that was interesting. That would be interesting if you did this or that <clears throat> might play with it. I should add that this meeting never takes place in her office. When I have five or six books to present to her, uh, it occurs with glasses of wine in front of us someplace, you know, uh, in the finance district of New York City. Um, and uh, we would never get a bottle of wine because that would imply that we were drinking. So we just get one glass of wine at a time. And I pitch her on these things. And invariably where she lands is, is you know, is when I, it's the one where I to, to start to say, this is a piece of history that reflects on now. Right. And, and then and then then she listens and she says, you know, that's kind of what you do. And, you know, even if you don't always write history, I mean, a lot of Hummingbird and the Curiosity is set in present time. 
and this one words for snow that I mentioned, it's entirely in present time. Um, still, it's about like, how does this story reflect on us as a society now? What's the what's the long what's the long moral of the story? I guess. Does your stories fit within, say, like a different genre? Has anybody ever asked you, any of your colleagues, say, "Hey, have you thought about putting this into a as a play, or putting this as a um, as as a script of some kind, or anything like that?" You know, the curiosity was optioned for film for something like nine years, and wow. uh, and I saw one screenplay, and it, I didn't love it. And right. I know that there was another one, and then it was reconstructed for television, and they had a pilot and I think five episodes and a five-season plan. And so there were a lot of different ways that it was that, that, that they had been fooled with. Um, what I know is that those are a different art form, so it would not be for me okay. to write. You know, I have right. tried. I've written, I've written two screenplays, and they both weren't made into movies. Let's just say that. <laughs> um, it's, it's its own art form. And, and I have a couple of friends who are film writers uh, in Vermont based and uh, very successful guys. And they're really good at what they do. And it's different. You know, the Glass Chateau, the Baker Street, uh, the, the Universe of Two. Do these all kind of take place in the same literary universe? Like, for instance, are they is there any cross pollination of characters or could they the oh, characters wow. from Baker Street to yeah. go like, yeah. That would be really cool if I were that smart. Um, <laughs> here's here's how they work. Okay, um, uh, here's how the, the extent to which they are connected. The hummingbird, which I mentioned, is about the Japanese pilot. Right. That involves the Pacific theater of World War II. Um, the Baker's Secret, which is set in France, that that's the European theater of World War II. Universe of Two takes place in the United States. That's the home front of the war. And so those three were really kind of, uh, I did want to write one of each of those perspectives because it was a world war after all. Uh, the, the new book, The Glass Chateau, is after the war. And in fact, the opening scene is um, a bunch of guys in the resistance are out in broad daylight in the town, at the town fountain uh, for the first time in, in years. What they see at the town fountain is a bunch of German prisoners of war that are waiting for a truck that's going to take them back to Germany. And so the war has ended. That's the opening scene. Um, these men are carrying the war with them in their memories and their consciences and uh, in their wounds. And so that's a lot of what the, uh, what the novel novels about. Uh, it, actually, none of them are physically wounded, but they are all emotionally wounded, but it is not a, so much a war story. It is as it is a rebuilding story. So, you know, if I were smarter than I am, maybe I would have connected these books, but each one really arose of its own accord um, with what the moment called for and, and, and what I was able to write. Um, some of these stories, to write a D-Day novel, I needed to get a couple of books under my belt before I could accomplish that. You know what I mean? You have to be like, I'm, I'm you know, the atomic bomb, like that's an intimidating subject. It is. And, um, and great books have been written tread carefully here you know and so so um yeah i'm more concerned about that about about just writing the best book i can and i wish i were smart enough to link them all together <laughs> that'd be pretty fun actually kind of meta yeah almost like there's some tertiary character in the background that is connected to uh one of the other books but yeah so i gotta say this has been a, a genuine delight chatting with me you. too thank you right, thanks well, for having thank me you. Robert. real pleasure 
we'll we'll end before eight. So okay, great. Yeah, yeah. Because the longer we go, the more I have to edit. So I just I don't like editing. (laughs) I'll try not to swear. (laughs) Yeah, I get I get a in the post editing. I do have a little. I do have a beeper in case if you feel so. It'll be fun. (laughs) (laughs) You should just beep a bunch of my sentences anyway. Everyone will think I'm. Make people guess what you're saying. All right, here we go. So let me do the intro. Here we go.